0: Coming up on the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast.
1: Chronic stress creates chronic inflammation. That chronic inflammation can cause issues in the gut bacteria. Even on a basic level, two main ways. One, elevated cortisol stress hormones, which can actually break down the mucosal layers and protective lining. And it also puts us to this fight and flight mode. And so if we're in chronically a low-grade fight and flight, we're chronically underproducing digestive enzymes, stomach acid, we chronically underutilize our peristalsis or movement of food through the digestive system. So now we have a lack of proper hormones and enzymes and all kinds of stuff. We're not moving food through properly. We're highly inflamed. And what loves bacteria uh, or bad bacteria love these highly inflamed environments. So they then overgrow. And with these overgrowths, we now have bacterial dysbiosis, which leads to all kinds of issues. You could imagine arguably every medical condition under the sun.
0: Hello, and welcome to the Get Lean, E Clean podcast. I'm Brian Grinn, and I'm here to give you actionable tips to get your body back to what it once was 5, 10, even 15 years ago. Each week, I'll give you an in-depth interview with a health expert from around the world to cut through the fluff and get you long-term sustainable results. This week, I interview Josh Deck. Josh is an ex-paramedic and holistic nutritionist specializing in gut health. We discuss the biggest offenders of gut health along with how chronic stress can affect your gut, how low stomach acid could be the cause of your acid reflux, issues with nutrient depletion in our food system, how 93% of the leading causes of death could be gut-related, Josh's morning and evening routine, and his one tip to get your body back to what it once was. Really enjoyed my interview with Josh. I know you will too. Thanks so much for listening and enjoy the show. All right, welcome to the Get Lean Eat Clean podcast. My name is Brian Grin and I have Josh Deck on. Welcome to the show.
1: Brian, it's a pleasure to be here, man. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Yeah. Great to have you on, holistic nutritionist specializing in gut health and yes, then ex- an ex paramedic. How long did you do that for?
1: Not long enough. Um, mm-hmm. I actually graduated in 2013 and I mean by the time I was in my early 20s, I was already into personal training and fitness and moving into nutrition, so I got some really cool experience in there, but less than two years before I changed careers for sure. So it was an interesting ride. Glad I had it, but I'm glad I am where I am.
0: Yeah. And what sort of piqued your interest with gut health? What what led you down that path?
1: It was an interesting process. It was all a bunch of happy accidents. So First things first, you know. I was in personal training and fitness. Well, let's let's go back one more. When I was a paramedic, I realized pretty quickly that it wasn't healthcare. It was more about sick care, right? You pick the same people up for the same condition, same disease, the same processes, and nobody got better. You're always picking people up to take them to the hospital, and they get new medications or an increased dose of the same medications. And by the time you're done with them, the, you know they end up calling week after week until they stop calling because they're dead. Mm. And so I didn't want to do sick care. So. I ended up changing careers by a bunch of happy acts and it's gone into fitness. And the first client who came to see me or one of my first, my early twenties, I might have been 22, 23. Her name was Lynn. She was 57 years old and she just had a gastric sleeve done. It was a Roux-en-Wise. It took 70% of her, 76% of her stomach rather. Um, She was on high blood pressure medication. She had 17 pills and insulin for breakfast, nine pills and insulin for bedtime. Um, She slept with a CPAP machine, was on the disability list at work, you know, on and on it went. And so she was 57 when she came to see me. So by about 59, we started working together, or we continued working together rather. She ended up breaking her first world record as a power lifter in the raw federation. And so it just really showed me very quickly the potential of the human body to heal itself. And she kept breaking records till 61, 62 years old when she retired. Mm. And so I got into my fitness career further and further, many more years. And I probably did that for five or six years. And the further I got in, the more stuff I started to see, depression, anxiety, skin issues, irritable bowel, and all these things came back. It was all gut. Every time someone got better with their skin or their moods or their sleep or their, their their depression, whatever it was, it was always the gut. And so I got more and more interested and I just felt like I kept getting pushed into new areas, went back to school, became a nutritionist, and I started working. I saw people of all kinds, right? Diabetes, weight loss, whatever it was. And again, it was all back to the gut. And so as I started to address the gut, more severe gut cases came to see me. Eventually, it was severe IBS. And then one day, my first inflammatory bowel disease, that's Crohn's and colitis, client came to see me, and we turned them around in just a couple of weeks. They were feeling better already. After a couple of months, they were in full remission, no more medications needed, and more people came to see me for that. And I thought, like, these people need help more than anybody else. It's one of the most severe gut diseases on earth is this inflammatory bowel disease. It's debilitating. Imagine having 30 to 50 bowel movements a day full of blood and mucus and pain where you can't even leave the house. Like It just destroys your career, destroys your life and relationships. And so that's really what I fell in love with was helping people get their quality of life back, just coming back from like the pits of, of, of health hell. And that's where I am now. So that's that's sort of the trajectory of where we started to where we are today.
0: And what would you say some of the biggest offenders are when it comes to gut health? Uh, because it it just keeps coming up more and more and it's probably more prevalent now than it was, you know, 20, 30 years ago.
1: Man, it's actually wild if we look at the statistics behind it. You know, irritable bowel is something people can complain about for quite some time. But I look at these as a sliding scale just to give context. If we look at the severity of increase, looking at Inflammatory bowel disease, right? It basically starts in two ways. One, we have a direct insult. So, someone has, you know, a Lyme disease or they have mold infection or something causes an issue with heavy antibiotic use, something that changes the gut bacterial profile and leads to inflammation. The second one is wear and tear. So, somebody who has minor digestive issues that compound and get worse. And as this breakdown process happens, like wearing a pair of shoes without socks, right, that blister on the heel, rub raw till it bleeds. And this progressive nature of it gets worse and worse until it turns to inflammatory bowel disease. So to give you an idea of the insults of it, well, I want to get into that. There have been so many things making it worse. But if we go back to 1990, the World Health Organization, the CDC would estimate that back in 1990, there was give or take one and a half to 2 million cases globally of inflammatory bowel disease. Today, it's 7 million. Wow. So over the last 30 years, we're watching this wear and tear. And so if it's not this random disease that falls out of the sky and something that progressively gets worse, we've x our inflammatory bowel disease cases. So the worst of the worst, 72% of Americans complain of gut issues on a regular recurring like weekly basis, constipation, diarrhea, gas bloat, something. So imagine if it's a wear and tear process that worsens over time, 72% of people are on that slippery slope. So we do have to ask why. What makes it worse? If we go back to the basics, man, I mean, our food is our number one toxic thing we consume. It's not only like the junk food we eat, but even where our food comes from, looking at pesticide usage in the last 30 years. Pesticides, the amounts we consume are up two to four times the variety we consume, because we have what 17,000 different pesticides allowed in North America. So, our variety of pesticide consumption is up more than 19 times, and they all kill different things. So, we're all killing and destroying our bacteria at rapid rates on top of sugar, which is pro inflammatory, on top of high stress lifestyles, on top of processed food and packaged foods and things that never existed 100 years ago. We didn't have this amount of disease all those years ago. We also didn't have these types of foods or amount of toxins in our food. And I would say those are probably our number one insults.
0: Yeah. And you talk about stress and you, a lot of times people don't link stress with gut health, but it it plays quite a role. Maybe explain that a little bit.
1: Mm. Well, it's pretty simple. I mean, we know it's, it's funny because we go, well, stress is bad. but we, we don't really take the opposite side, which is like joy, peace, and happiness as being actually health benefit. <laughs> but looking at stress, I mean, I know a lot of guys will pull it back to the caveman days, but I use that as an extreme example, just illustrate how different our lives are. Back then, right? It's tribal warfare from time to time. It's getting up and finding your food, going hunting, and maybe running from the occasional predator to your back home and safe in your village. That was really the only acute stresses we had. But today, we're all chronically stressed, right? You're at a gas station, somebody comes in, somebody's holding a gun, there's robberies, you know, gas prices are going up, food is going up, you are stuck in traffic at work, you hate your boss, you're working late nights, we're working from home, we're inundated with social media all the time. Like, there's just so much shit, so much crime, so much chronic stress, so much daily stress, household stress, and I'm not just talking psychological stress, I wanna pull that layer one back further, Because we often look at stress, go, I'm angry, I'm sad. There are more stressors than that. We have to look at other things that basically require your body to use excess resources. That's going to be a stressor. Technically, digesting your food requires excess energy is a stressor. Going to the gym is a stressor. And so we're on all the time. We're nonstop. We're moving. We're going. We're doing new things, engaging with friends, not sleeping, up late on our phones, Our sleep is disrupted constantly. We're we're getting, I think Molly Eastman says, we're getting 100 times less light during the day as we need to regulate our circadian rhythm and 100 times too much light at nighttime through blue lights and TVs and phones. So we're not even sleeping and recovering from all this stress. And those between our food and our choices and chronic stress lifestyle, these are the biggest stresses we have. And what they do is this chronic stress creates chronic inflammation. That chronic inflammation can cause issues in the gut bacteria. Even on a basic level, two main ways, one, elevated cortisol stress hormones, which can actually break down the mucosal layers and protective lining. And it also puts us to this fight and flight mode. And so if we're in chronically a low-grade fight and flight, we're chronically underproducing digestive enzymes, stomach acid. We chronically underutilize our peristalsis or movement of food through the digestive system. So now we have a lack of proper hormones and enzymes and all kinds of stuff. We're not moving food through properly. We're highly inflamed. And what loves bacteria uh, or bad bacteria love these highly inflamed environments. So they then overgrow. And with these overgrowths, we now have bacterial dysbiosis, which leads to all kinds of issues. You could imagine, arguably, every medical condition under the sun.
0: When you take on a client, do you do any type of testing? Um, I know there's like, you know, these GI maps and things mm-hmm. like that. Um, what what type of testing do you do, you do to, to you know, because <laughs> it could be sort of a complicated thing, the gut. <laughs> And it's Mm -hmm. like, which, where should someone start?
1: Well, it's really tricky. I mean, obviously, you know, if, if you've got a house that's on fire and it's a gas leak, turn off the gas. That's number one, right? Like, obviously start with just fixing the basic stuff. So you're not eating and drinking and doing all the things causing the issue. But if we want to go back and figure out GI mapping is great, but we have to understand gut bacteria. And so just as some context for the audience, like your gut microbiome is this ecosystem can about a hundred trillion bacteria all living inside of your digestive tract, most of which are in your large intestine and they all live there and perform functions. Everything I argue, they're more important than your DNA. They integrate with every aspect, every cell, every process, every fiber of your being. They help detoxify, balance hormones. They produce vitamins. They alter genetic expression. Like there's so much that they do. And so if we have this gut bacteria, it's a very complex ecosystem composed of about 20 million, give or take. We'll say, um, 2000 to 3000 species, upwards of 7000 different strains of these different species. Multiply it out, you've got 20 million different bacterial genus, we'll say, or genetic um, bacterial pieces. And so a GI map might measure 50 to 100. So it's a grain of sand on a beach. So a lot of people disregard and say they're not good or not useful. They are fantastic for what they're fantastic for, just like every tool in medicine. And they're very specific because we just don't have the technology yet to measure 20 million different bacteria, right. right? So GI mapping is great to measure your gut bacteria. Is it high? Is it low? What's in balance? What's out of balance? But they work well in combination with other things depending on the digestive situation. Is it severe digestive disease? Is it autoimmune disease? What caused the inflammation? Are you dealing with mold toxicity? Then we get into organic acid testing and blood labs and histories and like, where do you live and geolocation? Because it all matters on what's going on to take a history to figure out the breakdown. And so I realize it sounds like a lot, we're kind of getting off track. It's a bit of a tangent, but the moral of that being tracking down the root of digestive issues is very complex. And the testing we use, be it digestive testing, GI mapping, organic acids, or others, really comes down to the history of the individual and so this is where i'll tell people like ask a professional you know we often ask what's the what's the thing i can take what's a silver bullet is which probiotic is best it doesn't matter because it's not best for everyone if i'm taking a probiotic or or something like that that i already have too much of in my system i'm making right. it worse right. you could have a gut issue because you're low on that probiotic and you take it and it makes you better so we have to be very careful of how we approach these things
0: yeah i mean you know that's it's obviously, um, where are we going? Nutraceuticals, things like probiotics are, are big and they're on the market and expensive. And it's like, well, I think people should maybe take a step back before they just buy a probiotic and think that they're like healing their gut. Um, what about low stomach acid? How is that sort of wrecking the gut and what can people do to sort of get stomach acid
1: up? Well, that's an interesting question. Now, if we look at, low stomach acid, what it does and what it causes. Symptomatically, you'll be bloated, you'll have indigestion. And we often see things like acid reflux, right? Now there's definitely structural, functional issues that can cause acid reflux. But in my practice, the most common cause, bar none of acid reflux I see is actually low stomach acid. And that's because the sphincters above and below the stomach, they're both pH and pressure sensitive. So you need the acidity from the acid and the fluid volume of that acid volumetrically to keep those sphincters closed. And so if you're low on acid because you're high stress, you'll be in that fight or flight. So you're not producing. So you're going to have low stomach acid, which means you're going to have all kinds of bacteria coming in. Now, the entry to the GI tract is the mouth. The exit is the back door, right? So that's your beginning and end. What comes in the mouth comes into the stomach, and if you don't have enough acidity through the stomach to kill things off, bacteria on your food, biting your fingernails, um, you know, picking a pen up off your desk and putting in your mouth and chewing on it at work, like all these things introduce bacteria, and that stomach acid is kind of a, a gateway where some things survive, some things don't. So if you have low stomach acid, you're introducing pathogenic, potentially pathogenic or dangerous bacteria to your gut and your ecosystem, this very delicate ecosystem inside your body. But not only that, we have other bacteria that can overgrow inside the stomach. Most commonly we'll see like H. pylori is another one people test for, loves the presence of low stomach acid, which can cause issues. It can reside in the mouth and again, infect the whole GI tract and cause issues there. And then we look at other things. You're not breaking down, digesting food. So if you don't have stomach acid, you're not extracting iron very well from your food, for example. So you're going to be low on that. You might be anemic. And so it's just this cascade of events that set off. And so people who have acid reflux and take antacids might actually be pouring gasoline on that fire because you already have low acid. So you're refluxing. So you're taking an antacid to suppress it even further Feeding into this issue of low acid, which feeds digestive issues, causes this bacterial dysbiosis or imbalance in gut bacteria, which again feeds these other problems. So it becomes very incestuous, and it becomes a self-perpetuating prophecy, really, of guaranteed digestive issues.
0: Yeah, and I'm sure t- a lot of people live with these issues for so long, and until they end up, you know, trying to address them with a pill, which probably won't, maybe it'll just mask the symptom and they don't necessarily get, like you mentioned to the root cause. Um, Would you say that like, you know, there's a a lot of restrictive diets now, right? We have like carnivore, we have, obviously we have fasting and things like that. Um, And I, I always, I've had some individuals on my podcast, you know, Jay Feldman, we've talked about in the past where, you know, something like fasting has been beneficial for people because It's so restrictive in the fact that the the individual's gut, it allows the gut to actually heal. Um, Mm -hmm. Do you think that is part of the reason why these people are getting such positive benefits from some of these restrictive diets is the fact that they they don't have to deal with these gut stressors that they've potentially been eating for a lot of their lives?
1: It's actually a very good question, you know, because if we look at what is introduced into the gut, oftentimes... In any kind of healing process, any sickness, really, we're like, what can I add? What's the pill I can take? What's the supplement I can take? What's the foods I should eat? We're always looking to add, but very rarely do we take away. And I think that's a great point of view on that is a lot of people getting better be it bacterial issues or toxicity, whatever it is, by reducing the foods. Number one, you're reducing the chance of having some kind of inflammatory reaction, right? If you have a sensitivity, you have elevated IgGs, which are are fleeting and temporary. Um, But if you have these things causing problems that you don't know, even these low-grade inflammatory responses, look at carnivore. For example, you cut out all potential for pesticides except for what maybe the animals eat unless you're grass-fed, grass-finished, organic, in which case it's the best you could possibly get, the cleanest you could possibly get. You're reducing any kind of fermentable carbohydrates or fibers your bacteria could be eating and overgrowing and producing byproducts with. So we look at these reduction, and if there's fungus like candida, you're no longer feeding them sugars and starches so they can't grow anyway. So the elimination not only has the benefit of reduction of what you're adding, But a lot of the benefits you can be getting from what you're no longer feeding, which you're no longer perpetuating overgrowth. And then, of course, I'm a big advocate for animal-based diets. It's the most bioavailable uh, proteins and sources and heme iron, all these things that we can get are the most bioavailable. And so now we're taking in better nutrient sources, more bioavailable nutrients. We're reducing the risk of intaking potential toxins and pathogens. And we're no longer feeding our potential overgrowth of other issues, which is why definitely I think a lot of people have benefits from carnivore is because of the reduction, number one. But number two, we're giving your body what it needs so it can then build back. You know, there are studies that'll suggest, and I'll tell you, Brian, it's, it's pretty bizarre we look at our food because some studies will suggest there was one back in I think 2005 or somewhere in there, University of Texas studied the nutrient depletion in our food. And they found some information suggesting that our food, for example, is anywhere from 30 to like 800 times more depleted on nutrients. Some suggesting you could eat eight oranges today to get the same vitamin process or the same vitamin amounts you would have gotten from your great grandmother's oranges from single orange 200 years ago. And so looking at this stuff, we can see we're already depleted on nutrients. We're not getting enough from our food because our soil is tilled. It's overgrown. We don't rotate crops. We don't get cover crops. There's no biogeochemical cycling right? So food doesn't fall off a tree, rot in the ground, grass will grow, cow eats the grass, we eat the cow. We're not getting that. And so all these nutrients are depleted. And so by eating animals who already act as a filter, who already take all those nutrients up as best they can and really condense them into meat and fat cells, we're now consuming that. So there are so many benefits in this regard. Now that being said, I'm also not against plants per se, there's argument can be made, of course, very, very viable arguments for a plant-based or an animal-based diet. So I go intuitively based on what people understand and how their body feels and what they need and where deficiencies are. But it is a really interesting concept to bring up. Are they getting better because of the food, what they're adding, or because of what they're removing, or is it a bit of both? And I would venture to say it's the latter for sure.
0: Yeah. And um, are there certain types of like supplements that you Lean towards when it comes to benefiting gut health? I know there might not be a universal one, right? It probably depends on the individual, <laughs> sure. but there's sort of your, you have some go tos when it comes to any type of supplement.
1: You know what I do? And the first thing is you want to give your body its building blocks. So people often ask, what's the thing I can take? And nobody really likes these answers because they're so basic. We always want things that are more complicated, more exciting. It's got to be a sexy new supplement or a sexy <laughs> new this and that. And so my basic thing, Heavy dosings of basic multivitamins like methylated and high-quality vitamins. I don't like tablets. I go to capsules or powders for sure. They're more easily absorbed. But I go to high doses of vitamins, high doses of minerals, basic fatty acids. Like I don't care if you're consuming nice olive oils or coconut oils or flax or MCT. Get some nice short-chain fatty acids and and oils and fats you can break down. And even at that point, again, a good vitamin D3K2 because these are some of the basic building blocks. Most of us are deficient in. So we always want a sexy supplement that has this great benefit, helps burn fat, helps balance the gut, helps decrease inflammation. But why are you inflamed? Most of the time, yes, you're sick, or there's a process or an insult causing inflammation like mold or bacteria and toxins. But on the other hand, your body doesn't have enough firemen to put out the fires. And what are firemen? They're basic building blocks. It's your vitamins, your minerals, your water, your macros, your fats, your proteins, getting these in high quality without the toxins, which are more fire. And so it's not a sexy answer, but just giving your body the basics, provide it with the conditions it needs to boost its own cellular and metabolic processes to heal itself and very simply get ahead of the damage being caused. That's the most basic thing that we can do that nobody wants to do because again, it's not sexy, but it's the foundation of every protocol.
0: Yeah, no, great point. I, I, it's always, it always comes back to the basics, right? Like I, I, I think there's so much information out there when, when, whether it comes to gut health or exercise, like all the, you know, you just sit, watch, you know, you just go on Instagram and see all these different exercises and you're like for 90% of the people, it's not going to work or they shouldn't yeah. really try that. Right. Like just stick to the basics and you, you'll get what you want unless you're specifically training for something, uh, like some event or something, uh, What type of other things could individuals do to help maybe uh, promote gut health and, you know, like outside of maybe just eating or supplementation?
1: Well, that's a great question. So I think a really good place to start, if you want to wind back the clock a little bit here, is just to talk about how the gut bacteria starts, number one, and sort of how it grows and how we develop it so you can understand how to maintain it. And from there, we can understand what to do to correct it. That's sort of my my go-to if you want to dive back that far. okay so let's look at number one we get our bacteria in utero right we get it from mom when you're in the womb as a fetus we used to think the placenta was sterile but we now understand it's teeming with microbes and microbacteria if you look in the mirror right if you look at that's brian i can see brian grin and that's me 30 percent of that is actually you and your own dna the rest is bacteria and fungi and other cells like your gut bacteria alone outnumber your own body cells 10 to 1. And that's your gut microbiome. But you have a microbiome on your skin and your face and your nose, your eyes, your hair. They're everywhere. And these neighborhoods communicate. We get them from other places. So they integrate in your cells and your organs in utero, number one. Number two, when you're born through the birth canal, like a healthy, normal vaginal birth, your skin gets covered in all these bacteria. So babies lose that in C section. And so that's why you may have heard now vaginal swabbing will swab inside and then, you know, pat down the baby to inoculate this bacteria as a secondary option. Number three, we get our bacteria from breastfeeding. We know statistically, babies who are strictly uh, bottle fed versus breastfed, for example, we know they're prone to all kinds of diseases and issues. So, infants not breastfeeding, we get infe- infectious mor- uh, morbidity, rather, is one thing we see increasing huge. Um, elevated risk of childhood obesity, type 1, type 2 diabetes, leukemia, SIDS babies who strictly breastfeed or strictly bottle feed as opposed to breastfeed are twice as likely to die from SIDS, which is sudden infant death syndrome. So we see a lot of health complications immediately from not breastfeeding. And that's largely due to the proper nutrients. They're highly anti-inflammatory. Um, babies can gain pounds of weight in the first you know month. And it's just like a cow, right? A girl like a hundred pounds in its first you know, month or two of life. And so we have all these probiotics, all these prebiotics, all these fatty acids, all these proteins and vitamins that come from breast milk. And it lines the turf like this colostrum the first three days is a beautiful thick turf the baby gets. And now this bacteria starts to develop like seeding a meadow. Now, if you have a meadow that's newly seeded, it's fresh dirt, fresh grass, it'll grow. Bugs start to come in, new insects, new small get rodents and stuff that come in and start creating this ecosystem. And that's a beautiful way to eventually, over years, grow a rainforest. And that's how much, very much how our gut bacteria starts to grow. From early on, we develop this gut bacteria and it seeds and grows as we re-inoculate. So eating new foods, experiencing new things, kids, putting their fingers in their mouths, getting new bacteria into the system, re-inoculate you to give you a new introduction of life to your meadow, to your ecosystem, which creates diversity, which creates resilience. The problem is a lot of us miss these basic stages in life. We're born via C-section now. We're three, four times more C-section rates than we were 30 years ago. Breastfeeding is on the decline. We want to see more of that. And so kids are sick to begin with. So they already have low diversity. Then we go in and use antibiotics for the flu, which doesn't make any sense. We go in and eat junk food, fried food, sugars, which feed to bacterial imbalances, which cause more issues, which we then see developing sicker and sicker bodies. And so now we have people who are sick because their ecosystems are not diverse. They don't have the immune system. 70 to 90% of your immune system is cultivated inside your gut by these bacteria and by your lymphatics. And so if we don't have this healthy layer built from childhood, we're at a deficit. So what do we do? Number one, eat more foods, but eat a variety of foods. We have to eat healthy foods, of course. That's an obvious answer. We know inflammatory foods, fried foods, junk foods cause these issues inside bodies. They create inflammation and destroy bacteria, feeding bad bacteria, feeding illness. And so if we peel these layers back, like what can I do as an adult who was C-section, and bottle-fed, well, number one, we can get you on some basic probiotics. Even though we've not tested like we talked about the GI map, if you're at a deficit of taken lots of antibiotics, it's probably a good chance a probiotic broad spectrum is going to be okay, right? If you take it and you feel worse, give it a couple of days. If you start to feel better, it's doing its job. If not, cut it back, right? And go get some testing done. Um, On the other hand, yeah, get a GI map done so you can see what you're lacking and we can actually see what your body needs in its community to start reintroducing at least 100 or so we can actionably change. And again, get outside, get in nature, get dirty. We know by measuring gut bacteria, the best diversity correlates to the best health and those with the best diversity are those who live in nature and work on a farm they're engaging with other animals they're in the dirt they're eating food right out of the ground those with the worst don't have pets they live in high-rise buildings they're in the city they eat fast food and they don't get outside and get in nature and get fresh air So we basically do the opposite of modern lifestyle today and get to as close to like the farmer's lifestyle as you can, eating a variety, travel, try new foods. Those are the best things we can do to introduce new bacteria, to build diversity, to build our biomes, which eventually, and again, directly will build our health, our defense mechanisms and our immune systems.
0: Interesting. Uh, Question, is there anything you've changed your mind about since starting uh, you know, as a holistic nutritionist and gut specialist, like through the years, is there something you've changed your mind
1: on? I love that question (laughs) so much. And I honestly, I change my mind every week. Something new (laughs) comes up that plants a seed that one day will turn. I was raised through my, my professional career on the conventional plant-based diet, very little meat, very little red meat, eat more plants, eat more vegetation. And the more I get involved with these doctors and learn about the animal-based lifestyles, the more I've swayed to that. I've actually moved myself. I'm not full carnivore, but I'm very animal-based. I eat a lot of red meat. I eat a lot of butter. And my mental clarity, I used to have severe ADHD. I was actually diagnosed moderate to severe. I was on vivance and all kinds, had gut issues. And those all went away. Like, I was fine. I was following the traditional diet that I was taught in school. And my gut, as a nutritionist, specializing in gut kept getting worse. Mm-hmm. I wasn't given the answers. And it was when I went to animal-based, I had all these extra benefits. My ADHD, you wouldn't know it unless you live with me and you're my wife and see me leaving socks on the floor, doors open and stuff. But outside of that, I'm 95% better. My clients I work with, again, in severe gut disease, I specialize in IBD, which is your Crohn's and colitis. And they get the best benefits, nine out of 10 from an animal-based diet. And even going back to the 1800s, we have documented cases of Crohn's disease being cured by carnivore diet so i'd say it's the biggest thing i've changed my mind on and of all the things that we can possibly do obviously nutrition is the biggest and just having a broader understanding and this is where we run into a lot there's a lot of extremes on both sides i notice there seems to be not to bring in politics but it seems to be political and personality alignments with certain types of protocols I tend to find vegans to be a lot more extreme. I've had people compare me to Hitler saying that it's worse than the Holocaust, the amount of kill, uh, cows that we kill. Oh, I'm like, it doesn't even make sense. Or that, you know, so we have these extremes left and right. And we see them in diets. And the most chill, relaxed people, I see other people like, yeah, man, I run a farm. I eat a lot of meat and my health is great. Those who I find are on the extreme ideology tend to be a bit more angry and ironically more stressed, which ironically creates more stress issues, which burns through more nutrients, what they're not getting from their plant-based diets. And so it just is, again, a self-fulfilling prophecy. And so it's a very complicated thing, but I guess what I'm getting at here is as practitioners and even students of the craft, whether or not a practitioner or just someone who is a citizen scientist, we have to be open-minded. We have to understand that there's other opinions out there that if we just shut up and learn something, We can actually make some really cool changes. It's when I took away and I started stepping back from my conventional education of plant-based and more plants and more vegetables and less meat. That's what I was taught. Because I was able to step back and say, what if, what if I just try this? What if I just understand? What if I just try to take a nugget? I'll go to a whole weekend conference, pull out three nuggets, but those plant a seed that later in my career turns into a beautiful tree producing fruit that I'm now helping people reverse chronic disease that western medicine says they live with for life and in months and weeks they're completely reversed because we're open-minded science is always changing and if we're not even willing to step back like yeah maybe there was a time when plant-based diets were better i don't know most of the vegetables we have today are gmo or modified for higher crop yields and so biologically they're not even the same there may have been a time when plant-based diets were the best but looking at our food now looking at our pesticides now, looking at the diseases, the the modification over growth of crops and how it changes their biology, that's going to change at some point. Maybe it's not now, maybe it is. And we just have to look at the science objectively, try it in clinical trials, try them and take all the variables out and see what is actually working. But then we have to, again, we're, we're going against medical bias and agendas and political agendas and things get very muddy and very messy. So that's my, that's my two cents.
0: Okay. So to some, you, you've, you've gone more meat based since you started. Yes, was sir. there anything else that you've changed your mind
1: on? I would say that's the biggest thing. Okay. Something I, I was taught in conventional medicine, and this is very important as well, is that people have sicknesses and we need drugs to fix those sicknesses. Somebody has high blood pressure, we need to give them blood pressure meds. They have high cholesterol, here's a cholesterol drug. You have inflammatory bowel disease, here's an immune suppressive drug because you have an autoimmune condition. But something we've had to learn in the functional space is that every condition, every inflammatory process, every disease has a root. And if we're not looking for the root, we're forever chasing causes. And even in my circle, working in the integrative medicine approach, there are even many doctors, and I'm I'm taking the median ground to say there are a lot of cases of chronic disease or diagnosed autoimmune. I don't even care if it's IBD. Maybe it's lupus or MS. We look at these diseases and go, well, there's nothing we can do. We have to understand that autoimmune disease and the severity of any breakdown process, even just like bloat and acid reflux getting worse to the spectrum of severity of autoimmune inflammatory bowel disease, it's a dial that turns up and turns down. We have a lot of control, even if it's autoimmune and genetic, autoimmune disease 25% at most is genetic, which means we have control over 75% of this volume knob. Do we turn it up, turn it down? But we just accept what our doctors tell us and go, well, it's autoimmune, food doesn't matter, it doesn't create the disease, so therefore they think it doesn't affect the disease, we'll take these drugs and hope for the best. And so we have to be open-minded to that as well. And I've learned that throughout my medical career, that if we can understand, it's not just one answer. Science is evolving. Other people, honestly, I find that people who are shut down the most, who are shamed the most, who are told they're quacks and they're crazy, anywhere from thirty to fifty years, they're going to be right. And yeah, So that's right. what I've learned as well. Yeah. You know, look at functional dentists. Um, people, they, they were fifty years ago. They're talking about mercury and mercury fillings and root canals being a problem, and now we know that they're a problem. But they're still behind. There was two hundred and some on thousand dentists. Did you ever see that documentary "Root Cause" on Netflix?
0: I don't, I have not seen that yet. No.
1: So it's a documentary on root canals and the danger of them having dead tissue in the body and the the proclivity to develop things like uh, bacterial infections and all kinds leading to diseases like Mm. chronic diseases, cancers, bowel disease, autoimmune disease, all these things from the mouth. The health Mm. really starts in the mouth. And they were proving unquestionably through these studies, like, yeah, root canals, we cannot be doing them. About a quarter million dentists signed a petition to have it taken down off of Netflix. Why? Their practice is based on root canals. Otherwise, if we go back and say, yeah, mercury fillings are a problem. If we go back and say root canals are a problem, now we're open to litigation and lawsuits, loss of career, loss of finances and funds and your whole practice could go under and people are personally defensive. And so you have to understand there's more to the agenda behind it than maybe politics or preference or whatever. It's people's livelihoods that might be pushing their opinions to try to crush legitimate science. And that's a very dangerous place to be in 2023 when we're just trying to get people healthy.
0: Yeah. Do you have any like, uh, patient stories that, um, you know, either recent or over the years that, that, uh, you know, maybe people can relate to uh, whether it was they had IBS or whatever they had, and, and and they were able to get out of that.
1: Yeah, well, let's go broad spectrum here. I'll, I'll use IBD because that's what I specialize in. I've seen the craziest turnarounds. Um, like that example I used earlier, Lena, at 57 years old, 26 pills a day, insulin, disability that works two years, and she's breaking world records and has no medications and she's sleeping just fine. So we can see that extreme on the health side. But looking at chronic disease. So I got clients all the time and I can use their names because they're public information. It's available on the website. Um, This fella came in to see me named Louie and we started working together. He had inflammatory bowel disease, tried all the drugs, biologics, doctor had him on all kinds of stuff. He wasn't getting better. 16 years, 17 years, he dealt with this process in just 90 days. He was completely reversed. He had a little relapse, but now we're six months, seven months post, and he had never felt better. Mm -hmm. um his symptoms are completely gone no longer needs meds he's eating more fruit. he's not eating like you know pizza and french fries but he's able to eat a variety of all the health foods with no issues Uh, he's never felt better he's gained his weight again his energy is back he's a plumber he's able to go back to work and do his thing again and it took us about six months on the other hand karen she sings from the rooftops another one 16 years of ibd all the drugs all the biologics all the autoimmune suppressants all the things all the diets that her doctor could give her all the supplements under the sun eight different doctors went to the Mayo Clinic three doctors told her food doesn't matter there's nothing you can do about this it just is what it is but we can cut out your colon we think you're ready for surgery she said no we started working together sometimes it's this easy Louis took six months for her three weeks within the first three days her symptoms were reduced from 50 bowel movements a day to five and six within three weeks she was down to three and four bowel movements a day with no pain no nothing the crux of hers was a lot of digestive issues related to stress overtaxing and undernourishment we reduced her stress got her to relax take some time off got in the sun gave her body basic vitamins and minerals so it could repair itself and boom she snapped back from what she was told was an autoimmune disease and so the moral of this story, these are two great cases. One, six months is pretty typical to get somebody fully reversed. He had a bunch of digestive issues, a bunch of insufficiencies. We had some bacterial overgrowth from antibiotics. So it was overgrowth and depletion. But Karen, on the other hand, was just a high stress, high run case. And so she was able to reverse her process in just a few weeks. So these are our extremes. Your conventional versus really easy fixes. But the idea being that... Just because your doctor has told you there's nothing they can do, take these drugs, what it means is we just don't know, but somebody else might. And I've had people, man, when I started this process in, in gut disease, and I use these again as a spectrum for severity, but when I started in gut disease, I made a post on my Facebook about a year in, two years in, I was like, hey, I know what I know now. I'm seeing people get better. I firmly believe nine out of 10 cases of ulcerative colitis can be fully reversed. You should have seen the hate I got, not just from doctors and professionals, but from people suffering from the disease. I Mm. got flamed on Reddit. I got harassed. I got threats to my inbox. People booked out my calendars like nope at fu.com for months in advance. And it took a lot of time and like administrative work to go and clear my calendars because of these dicks trying to block it out because they just didn't believe it was possible. And now we're breaking ground. And I've actually, because of the success we've had, I've been recruited by some doctors to actually lecture at a functional medicine academy to teach doctors these processes. And so it's not that I'm better, it's just that we're different and we're all open-minded. But there are people, even those dealing with the disease, who don't want to hear it because well how horrib- horrible would it be if you've been 16 years dealing with this disease and it could have been reversed in 6 months? You'd be pissed. Mm. And so it's become your identity. It's become a very emotionally charged process. And so it's been different and it's been a process, but there there are a lot of extremes in the whole point of this one is that more can be done just because you got an opinion from one doesn't mean somebody else doesn't have a solution. And typically the crazier it sounds, the more likely it is to work.
0: Hmm. Wow. And, uh, what would you say? Like, I I like to always bring up routines. Are there certain routines that you have implemented into your life that, um, either morning or evening routines that have sort of helped your Mm -hmm. uh, overall lifestyle?
1: I do both. So yeah. typically what I do, it depends on my day, but I try to fast as much as I can in the morning. I try to skip breakfast, wait till lunch. And I find it really helps balance a lot of things, my mental clarity, my moods, emotions, inflammation, recovery. There's a lot of benefits to going beyond 12-hour fasting. And biggest one we see is just mitochondria and energy production. and Mitochondrial health is a big one from fasting. But outside of that is a basic bedtime routine. So many of us, like we talked about, We'll get up to a hundred times less light than we need during the day. So getting outside, opening the windows and like, I don't just mean like stand near a window. I mean, open the bloody window because a lot of that good light can be reflected or lost coming through the pane of glass. Right. Um, and on the other hand is a good nighttime routine. The best thing you can do for yourself is just set up. If you go to bed at say 11 o'clock at nine o'clock, everything's powered off. I prefer to go with the sun where I can, but turning off electronics, turning off Wi-Fi, not watching TV or being on your phone in bed, like play a game, like a board game, read a book, do a Sudoku, like something. It's basically getting back to what we would have done a couple hundred years ago. And we've seen people, circadian rhythm, just getting basic sleep and getting your body to A, fall asleep properly, B, stay asleep like it should, and C, wake up well-rested. Those are the most vital things we can do. Talk about basics and building blocks. We don't want to take vitamins and minerals because it's not sexy. We don't want to sleep because it's all about hustle culture and I'm going to work late and I'm going to pull all night is because my friends will be proud of me. Well, as a practitioner, I'll be proud of you if you sleep and get well rested because it's the best thing you can do. So that routine would look like stop eating two to three hours before bed, An hour and a half minimum up to three hours before bed, electronics and artificial lighting is off. I don't care if you're walking around your house in bloody candlelight, like take it to that extreme, (laughs) light a candle and use that because that infrared light is better for you than the blue light from your phone. Even with blue light blockers and blue light filters, it's not the same. It's an artificialized version. And then just try to wind down, do something different, read a book, concentrate on something that interests your mind without stimulating the circadian rhythm and changing that through blue light and other processes. And those are the easiest things we can do. Your gut and digestive system is directly connected to your sleep-wake cycle. That's why eating before bed, you're not going to digest well. You're also not going to detox well. Heavy detoxing happens at nighttime and it's going to mess up your circadian rhythm. So you're not going to sleep, wake up rested, or have a good quality sleep while you are asleep.
0: Love that. Love that. Yeah. And and I try to I always say it's, you know, I love walking and I think even just going for a walk after meals is something that if you could do, I mean, we're in, we're in the dead of winter here or well, although it's 40 degrees out, it's not even that, <laughs> I don't know it's how, how it is for you guys. We've had a very mild winter here, but same here, yeah. Uh, even if, you know, if you could just go for a walk after, after, after meals, I'm, you know, I'm, there's been, you know, links showing just to help with digestion and blood sugar issues just from that.
1: Oh, huge. Just getting to move, you know, having nice balanced meals. Again, I'm more animal-based, so I do eat a lot of fatty red meat. Um, I will cover it in butter and dip it in like water buffalo yogurt, which is really lovely. I can't have cow dairy, Um, but I'm actually advocating here. Another thing I'm learning is about raw milk. Um, I'm actually going to be getting myself some because we've been told raw milk is the worst, but the raw milk community strongly disagrees. And looking at how our food is even produced, you know, looking at 60 different enzymes in milk to help you digest and break things down and benefits you get about 10% of that in pasteurized milk so there's a lot of variables try different foods try different things don't be afraid to try what seems more extreme right now because you might fall in love with it and that's really all it is
0: well this was great josh Uh, where's the best place for people to find you
1: Easiest place to get a hold of me is through my website. I have a podcast called Reversible, the Ultimate Gut Health Podcast. That's actually spelt reverse able, A-B-L-E, the Ultimate Gut Health Podcast. And you can reach me through there. My website is reverseablepod.com. And There's a contact sheet there. you can always reach out. We do questions if you want to submit a question to the show. We actually do those once a week where our user writes in and we answer them like, how do I fix acid reflux? What's the best thing for ABC or what diets and all that? We have interviews weekly as well. And Of course, if you need to reach out for other things, you're looking for help, you can get that through the website. You can contact me that way again. Or we also have free programs on the website for those who aren't ready, aren't able, or aren't able to afford getting help. We do have free options for you guys as well, because everyone should have access to gut health help. And that's exactly what we do through this podcast. It's all things related to gut, is it food and farming, or stress, or bacteria, or surgeries, or diseases? It's all things in our world that affect our gut, and all things in our gut and how they affect our world. And that's all through Reversible, the ultimate gut health podcast.
0: Awesome. Awesome. And I'll ask you one last question that I ask pretty much all, everyone that comes on the podcast, if you were going to give them one tip to get your body back to what it once was maybe 10, 15 years ago, what one tip Hmm. would you give them?
1: Eat less often, right? So many of us are eating so much. Average American eats 17 times a day. And so if you can cut your window down to eight, 12, even 16 hours, 12 is probably best to get better mitochondria, which is better energy, better youth, slower aging, and bloody sleep. Those are the top two things you can do. Eat better, sleep more.
0: Love it. Well, Josh, appreciate you coming on, dropping all this knowledge, and I'll definitely put links in the show notes so people can you know find you and reach out or check out your podcast.
1: Yeah, it's been a pleasure, Brian. If there's anything that your audience needs from me or they have questions, like let me know. I'd be happy to answer some questions and fire them over to you or, again, directly whatever the process there is